It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, tech earnings continue this week, and we'll get a preview. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, who are looking ahead to the options facing the Bank of England as inflation in the UK remains the highest in the G7. I'm Doug Krisner. How close is the aviation industry in the APAC to pre-pandemic levels? I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where we're looking ahead to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis getting set to make a big economic speech. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with two of the biggest names in tech, Apple and Amazon, posting their latest earnings this coming week. And joining us to talk about what to expect, Ed Ludlow, co-host of Bloomberg Technology. Ed, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Happy weekend. (laughs) Yes, it is. Well, now, before we jump into Apple and Amazon, let's talk about takeaways from the other mega cap tech names that have already posted earnings for last quarter. And uh, there's a lot to digest here. So why don't I let you talk about and and we can go one by one, starting with maybe meta platforms. Yeah, I think there is a commonality between all of them that we've all been so hyped up over artificial intelligence, AI, and we go into earnings hoping that we hear some big piece of breaking news about what the the big tech names are doing in AI. But interestingly, the real theme of this earnings season had been that the core legacy businesses for each of these big tech names have done really well, surprisingly well. And that outperformance against expectations has seen the shares rise after earnings print in the case of Meta, Alphabet, Microsoft. And even though, you know, there's a lot of talk on the call about AI You know, that's what investors have been looking at. So Meta is a really interesting one. It's been an interesting quarter because Meta also launched threads, right? And they stopped telling us how that was going after it reached 100 million users. But again, the messaging from Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO, and Susan Lee, the CFO, is we're we're playing it slow. We're playing it safe with threads. But Zuckerberg did say that if cloud providers, for example, want access to their generative AI technology and they're going to make money off it. It's only fair that Meta makes money off it too. So that was a really interesting U-turn. Now, speaking of cloud, Microsoft had a bit of a surprise in its earnings last week about a a bit of a a slump in growth in its cloud computing unit, which is a big moneymaker for them. Two ways of looking at it. It was a milestone because Azure, which is the, the cloud unit, hit a milestone where for the first time 
it represented more than 50% of the overall share of cloud revenue. Like they make $110 billion a year in cloud related revenues. Sales growth is slipping, but you know, it, it's still, when you look at the Azure unit becoming increasingly important to them. And there's an interesting parallel, which we can talk about with Amazon, which is going to report next week, because we all know Amazon as an e-commerce platform, right? Amazon.com, Amazon Prime Video, but the cash cow for them is cloud. That's why we look so closely at how all of these guys perform, because it's a competitive market between the three of them. You know, there is some life there. And another encouraging sign we got from Intel, and that is about PC sales. They're saying things are looking up again. Yeah, Intel is a really interesting story because every earnings season, an executive will say, we think things will get better. You're going to have to take our word for it, but they'll get better at some point. And the messaging from Intel in the last couple of quarters is that the demand will recover in the second half of 2023. Well, what Intel did this week is demonstrate that that is actually true. We got some evidence. So they had a surprise profit in the quarter just gone. And in the current quarter, they forecast sales of $13.8 billion, which was ahead of what the street thinks they were going to make, $13.3 billion. And it all comes down to PC. The story is that there was just a surplus of chips that go into personal computers. That meant that people that make personal computers had an inventory they had to work through. They had a surplus of chips. The messaging from Intel is that they've worked through that inventory and they're now ordering again for the future. Very encouraging. All right, now let's look ahead. What's coming up this week? And let's start with what you see Apple reporting. Yeah, so so the quarter that we've already reported this year for Apple, the calendar second quarter, a lot of evidence that iPhone shipments are rebounding. Everyone is so stoked about the Vision Pro. Everyone's talking about the, the AR VR headset. But the thing is, it's just like AI. It's such a distant technology. It's so distant from being a meaningful revenue contributor that we just look at the iPhone and the latest generations of hardware that they're actually shipping. That is going to be the story for Apple. It always is. And it's important because the more devices that they sell around the world and the more surprise to the upside that there is for things like Mac in markets like China, it also usually translates to an improvement in their services revenue. What Apple wants to do is build an ecosystem. They want people to have multiple types of their devices in their hand or in their home and then be lured in to spend more on the software and services side. And so that's why we pay such close attention to to Apple and iPhone. And let's talk about that $3,500 price tag on that Vision One. $3,500 is very expensive. By comparison, the premium uh, MetaQuest headset is about $1,000, and its latest generation is about $500. So $3,500 is absolute premium. Now... Bloomberg had reported that in its first year, Apple had hoped to ship around 900,000 units. But if you do the math, this is what I'm talking about. 900,000 units at $3,500 still does not translate to $3.5 billion of sales. That's nothing in in the scheme of what they do on iPhone and Mac. Then the Financial Times reported that they're actually cutting expectations and telling suppliers, you know what, we're going to build nearer to half of those units. So they've kind of scaled back what they hope to do. It's going to be a really long time until this is mainstream. But the price point also makes you realize that the Vision Pro, it's for developers. It is for people who are early adopters at the cutting edge. Bigger question, at earnings, 
do we get a carrot dangled that has some information about future generations of the Vision Pro at a lower price point, a more mass market product? Apple is usually self-restrained. They usually don't do that at earnings, but you can always be surprised. Yeah, they, they, that, that, uh, just one more thing, so you never know. Uh, let's switch now to Amazon.com. And, uh, you know, we talked very much about their uh, the cloud computing, their Amazon Web Services, what that means. What are you looking for in that report? It's really interesting. Amazon is still unraveling its COVID-era investments where they just threw billions of dollars at fulfillment, getting packages to you as quickly as you could because during the pandemic, we were all at home. It drove a lot of business for them. But they were left with headcount and infrastructure that they just don't need. Andy Jassy replaced um, Jeff Bezos as CEO and discipline and kind of unraveling that investment in the pandemic era has been the story. AWS revenue rose around 16%, $21 billion of sales in the quarter just gone. So those stories continue. We, we know Amazon as consumers is Amazon.com, where we buy things and they're delivered to our doorstep. But the cash cow is its cloud business. Now, throw artificial intelligence into the mix. We might get some early signs about their strategy, which has been less about a consumer-facing generative AI tool like ChatGPT and more about providing the infrastructure, cloud-based infrastructure, for companies to work on their own AI tools. And once we have a sense that they're going to make some money on that and the timeline for that, you add it in as another revenue stream alongside AWS. Advertising has also been a surprise because it's a higher margin revenue that they make hand in hand with their e-commerce platform. Um, So a lot to focus on there. Now, Ed, I want to talk about uh, the impact of a couple of strikes in Hollywood on not not big revenue uh, generators for both companies, Apple and Amazon, but their streaming services. Uh, what's the thinking on how this is impacting Apple TV Plus and Amazon Prime? There is uh, two competing forces happening in the world of content and streaming, and it applies pretty uniformly to all of the names that are involved. The writers and actors strike gives everybody a lot of concern that the content timeline and content slate is going to be impacted. Simply put, if the actors and writers are on strike, New shows and films are not being written and they're certainly not being produced, which means there's a delay in putting them out. And in some cases, projects get cancelled altogether. The competing force is that if you take in the case of Amazon, Andy Jassy is looking very, very closely about how much money the prime video unit is spending on producing content because it is not a moneymaker for them. He wants to rein in that spending. So you can understand, right, why these are competing forces. We're concerned that not enough content's being made. And yet, at the same time, executives are saying, we've really got to scale back what we're spending. Because otherwise, we're not going to reach profitability. And the long-term profitability of streaming platforms is certainly a big question. Let's be honest, guys. Like, No one wants their favorite show to, to be cancelled or indeed like wait a whole year and a half for the next season to come out. But that is the prospect we face. Um, so that that's basically the equation the industry's facing. Well, a lot to look forward to. Ed, thank you so much. That's Bloomberg Technology host Ed Ludlow. Watch the show weekdays at 12 p.m. Wall Street time or download the B-Tech podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we're looking ahead to the options facing the Bank of England. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Now up later in our program... We take a look at the aviation sector in Asia. But first, after the raft of central bank decisions last week, attention now shifts to London in the coming days, where the Bank of England will announce its latest rate move. Unlike their colleagues in Washington or Frankfurt, policymakers in the U.K. are some way off from the end of their hiking cycle. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. Tom, the UK has been an outlier in the G7 for its inflation path, which saw the pace of price rises remaining higher and stickier in recent months, which led the Bank of England to hike by 50 basis points the last time around. The most recent inflation print did finally show a slowdown, but the headline figure was still at 7.9%. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg senior UK economist Dan Hansen. Dan, what is your expectation then for this Bank of England meeting? The last time around, the bank gave us a bit of a surprise. Yeah, they did. And I think looking at this meeting, there is I think, at least to my mind, a 50-50 split, 50-50 chance, if you like, between a 25 and a 50 basis point hike. Um, You mentioned there the inflation data. For us, that probably tips the balance towards a 25. Um, But it's certainly going to be a very close call. I think what you have to look at is, of course, there's been some good news on inflation, and you just mentioned it there. But I think the underlying picture goes to your first point about stickiness. So the composition of inflation is Mm. actually looking stickier now than the bank was expecting back in its May forecast. And it might be the case that looking at that, that's the thing that dominates and pushes them towards a 50 basis point hike. Um, As I say, we think probably on balance that the good news on the headline figure is enough to push them back towards 25. They've done a lot already um, and doing another 50 again. Would be quite a would be quite a message to send, but I think on balance they'll they'll opt for a smaller move. Where is the the stickiness coming from now in the inflation data? Yeah, so it's if you look at it, it's it is services that is that's running at probably twice, a little bit above that. In fact, twice its long run average. Mm. So it's up at seven point two percent long run average, is about three point three percent. So it's more than twice its long run average, and of course that's a reflection of. Well, I think it's a reflection of two things, actually. One is the obvious thing is the labour market, because a lot of services firms, their biggest cost is is labour. But I also think there's an element of um, 
the lagged impact of high energy prices. So if you think back to last year, you've got a lot of firms who rightly would have looked at the outlook for energy prices and been extremely worried. And I think a lot of them have locked in higher energy prices um, into their tariffs. Mm. And it's going to take a bit of time for them to roll off onto the new lower tariffs because obviously wholesale energy costs have fallen and households have started to feel the effect of that. And we'll see that, in fact, in the July data, the July inflation data. But I think that's one reason why um, services inflation, as well as the labour market, has has been sticky. Um, there's been a little bit better news on the good side. As I've said many times to you before, there are there are reasons to think that, think that goods prices will continue to, or goods inflation, I should say, will continue to ease off. But the stickiness, to answer your question, is really in services. Yeah, and that's interesting because of the change, and because of what we've been talking about over the past couple of months of inflation prints, where really the energy picture was the part that was kind of helping to bring things down. As you say, the fact that that getting, get, getting baked into the services side of the picture. If we think about the broader economic picture and all this, because this is the dilemma the Bank of England is having, is that you know the more it hikes, obviously the greater the risk of uh, recession. The latest PMI data for the UK showed you know, the flash number of fifty point seven down from fifty two point eight in June. Does that kind of tell us that the Bank of England? rate hikes so far at least are working well they're beginning to yeah i mean and we've seen up until this point that actually the response of the economy to everything that's been done and the high inflation has there's not been much change in the direction of the economy we've had sort of broadly i say stagnation over the past year but we haven't had anywhere near the level of weakness that we and almost all other forecasters had been expecting i mean i think just on the PMI itself, I didn't mention it in the, the answer to the first question, but I think that's another reason to think that 25 might be a, a better bet than a 50, um, just because there is now a little bit more evidence that, that this this very rapid tightening cycle is beginning to take hold on the economy. And I think what we'll get, as well as a, as a policy decision, of course, is a, is a forecast from the Bank of England this time around, and we'll see what they're thinking in terms of where the economy's heading, um, They'll have to take in the rising yields that we've seen, so the higher path of interest rates. So it'll be really interesting to see how they how they put that in and where it ends up. Because of course, remember back in May they took the recession out of the forecast. You know, there's a question this, this is time: Is it going to go back in? Is, this it, time is it about to, exactly that? Is it going to go back in? And just for sort of people that don't know the ins and outs of the Bank of England's forecasting process, what the bank does is it takes the market curve as given and it puts that into its forecast. So, And then the forecast gets spat out based on that market curve. So it gives it, the point of doing it is to give a sense of whether the market is right or wrong mm. in terms of the path of interest rates, whether that's consistent with 2% inflation in the medium term. So sort of the the bank is sort of hostage to that yield curve so it goes in and then the the forecast gets spat out back to it and you sort of see whether that path of rates is consistent with one two percent inflation in the medium term and second whether it's consistent with the, the economy going through a downturn to get there yeah, so of course those, those forecasts going to be very closely watched uh, in Westminster as well because the Prime Minister has made his number one priority having inflation by the end of the year after the most recent inflation figures we at Bloomberg are speaking to John Glenn is a minister in the Treasury Department and his was here's his take on where the inflation challenges lie now what I'm doing is controlling public spending to make sure that we don't or anything that adds fuel to inflation. But of course, we welcome these figures. There's no complacency, though, here in the Treasury. We work very closely with the bank. As you say, they do interest rates. We do government spending. But these are tough times for families in the UK. But we're going to be relentless in our commitment to halve inflation and get it down to the long-term trend of 2%. 
But John, are you going to do anything actively to reach your number one target of halving inflation by the end of the year? For example, ex-Bank of England policymaker Kate Barker suggested you should raise taxes. Well, we don't want to raise taxes. What we're trying to do is make sure that we spend money wisely. We had a spending review a few years ago. Obviously, meeting those numbers is now really hard in a high inflationary or higher inflationary environment. So my job is to make sure that we spend wisely, that we accommodated the pay review body uh, announcements last week for public sector pay. Um, that increased between six, six and a half, seven percent for one of the workforces. We did that by not by uh, taxing more, not by borrowing more, by asking government departments, by asking cabinet ministers to absorb that additional uh, pay requirement. So we're being relentless in focusing on, on making sure that we manage public spending and, and don't uh, add to the inflationary pressure, which the IMF and others have warned us we would do if we borrowed more. So that was Treasury Minister John Glenn speaking to Bloomberg's Leslie Burden and Anna Edwards. Um, Dan, there'll also be a question too about the where we are in terms of the pain the Bank of England is inflicting and the likelihood of a recession. Remind us what the expectations around uh, recession are in the UK. So I think the consensus is that it's certainly this year it's going to be avoided. Um, and I think if you look at consensus forecasts, it's that it will be avoided as well next year. Um, we're a little bit more pessimistic about it. We do Surely not. <laughs> you know me. But we're a little bit, um, say we're a bit more pessimistic. We do think there will be a modest downturn in the economy. But I think, you know, people jump on this idea of recession when you when you sort of write it on a piece of paper. But I think... The, the context here is that, as I've said before, the economy's been stagnating. So it doesn't take much for a negative quarter of growth. And we're what we've penciled in as a peak to trough fall in GDP of only 1%. That is not particularly significant. Mm. You compare it to the 90s, it was a 3% fall. The 80s, it's 4.5% fall. The financial crisis, it was over 6% fall in GDP. So, you know, they're, they're far deeper recessions in history. Okay. All the more interest in those forecasts we'll get from the Bank of England with their decision. Thanks to Bloomberg's senior UK economist, Dan Hansen. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Tom? Thanks, Stephen. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, Governor Ron DeSantis has a big economic speech this week. We'll get a preview. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. 
Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Governor Ron DeSantis is in the middle of a campaign reset and has a big economic speech planned for later this week. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. Yeah, Tom, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is seeking to reset his 2024 presidential campaign, which admittedly isn't in the best shape right now. He's bleeding a lot of cash. He's languishing in the polls behind frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, and he's trying to turn things around. So this coming week, as part of his revival efforts, he's preparing to give a major economic address. Bloomberg's Nancy Cook has been covering his campaign and was actually just in Iowa, and she's joining us now. So, Nancy, talk to us about this address he's going to give. What are the details? What is he going to talk about and what does he hope this achieves? So thanks for having me. Um, I've been in Iowa with Governor Ron DeSantis, where he's starting to preview some of the themes, economic themes that he's going to talk about um, in this major economic address in New Hampshire. And, And part of the reason that he wants to give this address is a lot of his donors and advisors have really wanted him in recent weeks to stop talking so much about Florida and really to start to talk about broader themes. And they feel like the economy and, and talking about what he would do there is a nice pivot away from some of the Florida-specific things and some of the culture wars that his campaign has really been known for. So some of the things that we're expecting him to talk about would be um, how he's going to tackle inflation. He really also wants to make the, the pitch that he thinks that the U.S. should totally open up all domestic energy production. He really wants to uh, decouple the U.S. economy from China's. Um, and he, he interestingly sort of waded into the student debt cancellation question and talking about how if people take out tons of what he called bad debt, you know, for majors or, or things that don't really end up paying off at the end, he feels like schools should be stuck with that, not the students. And so he, he's really sort of giving this, in some ways, a classic Republican message of, you know, less, less regulation, particularly on things like energy but also trying to really appeal to blue-collar and middle-class people with some messages on sort of jobs, wages, and student debt. So you said he's trying to focus not so much on Florida and his governing there when it relates to some of the culture wars and fights with Disney, etc. that doesn't seem to be resonating. But does he have an economic track record in Florida that he can tout here when he talks about his management of of the state's economy? Because it's a fairly big one. It is. Florida is a major state, and he is the governor there, and he has been a popular governor so far. So on the campaign trail, he tells things like Florida's low unemployment rate. Um, There have also been a number of businesses and business people that have moved to Florida, particularly during COVID, um, because they had a less restrictive environment. Um, So he talks about that, the migration. 
What he doesn't necessarily talk about is that, you know, Florida also has a lack of affordable housing. There's been a real um, housing crunch there. And also, and this is a thing very unique to Florida, but people there are really suffering under very skyrocketing prices for flood insurance, which again, sounds like the most Florida thing. But if you live there and you own a house and your flood insurance sort of goes through the roof, it's causing a lot of economic pain for, for people there. So I would say the economic picture in Florida is a bit more mixed than what he presents on the campaign trail. Okay, so we're going to see what he presents this coming Monday. But Nancy, as I, I mentioned at the top here, this speech is really just part of a wider effort, right? He is he's trying to turn things around, but he is also having to penny pinch a little bit more to do that. He's laying off staff. What else is happening inside the campaign as as he tries to you know reinvigorate this effort? So the re- this reset uh, has really been happening for the past two weeks, and they've laid off a total of thirty eight people. Um, so that's, you know, they had about a 90 person staff, so that's a huge chunk of people that's gone. They have raised a lot of money, but they have burned through that money at a very high rate given the size of the staff. And also, uh, DeSantis always likes to travel on private planes. That's expensive. Mm -hmm. And so they're really trying to, um, he's not necessarily cutting back on the private travel, but they're trying to cut back on staff and they're also trying to curb his travel. So he's not going to states you know, unnecessarily. Really, he's just only going to places to do fundraising, and then he's going to places, early primary voting states like Iowa, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. South Carolina, and Nevada. And they're really trying to stick to that. Yeah, Iowa, where you just were, and I'm guessing you didn't have the privilege of uh, flying private there, Nancy. Am I right? Nope, just on a good old American <laughs> Airlines flight. Um. Uh, the life of journalists. But on the subject of Iowa and New Hampshire, which you just mentioned, if he can't pull it off or get close to pulling it off in those states. Is that it for him? Is it Iowa, New Hampshire or bust? I think that Iowa, New Hampshire will be incredibly important because, and his campaign is putting a ton of resources in Iowa right now, uh, or not his campaign, the super PAC um, Mm. that's supporting them are putting in a ton of resources. But really the thing is, is that he has fallen in the polls. There was so much hope around his candidacy and the Republican party let's say, in January and February. But as he voters have gotten to know him, I I think that a lot of voters I talk to totally like Trump. They haven't totally been won over by DeSantis. He's not known for his retail political skills. And and I think that we've just seen a big drop in the polls for him. And and so I think Iowa and New Hampshire are going to be really crucial because if he can't win or do well in both or either state, I I think he's going to lose even more momentum and we've already seen him really drop in the polls in the last week. There's new polling that shows that, you know, he, uh, Tim Scott is gaining ground on him mm. in, uh, in Iowa. Chris Christie is gaining ground on him in New Hampshire. So he has managed to stay, stay as like the number two front runner or the number two behind Trump in the GOP field in polling and early voting states. But if other people start to gain on him, I think that that will, you know, sort of solve some problems for the campaign. Well, let's just focus on the front runner, Trump in particular, who you just mentioned. Obviously, the legal woes for the former president are mounting. Is DeSantis hurt by Trump's legal woes growing or does it help him? And I say this in that we've seen this pattern where President Trump runs into legal trouble and he raises a ton of money on it and his poll numbers actually go up. And it's very hard for Ron DeSantis to answer questions about it without alienating the Trump base, right? So how hard is is this entire equation for Ron DeSantis? 
This equation is so much harder than I think any of the DeSantis team anticipated because what has happened with each of these indictments is it has mobilized and energized Republican primary voters to coalesce around former President Donald Trump. And and the Trump campaign also has developed almost this playbook of how they approach indictments. And what they do is they really try to use them to their political advantage. Uh, Former President Trump gets out ahead of them, sort of announces them himself. They fundraise when the indictments come out. And a lot of Republican primary voters, when I talk to them on the campaign trail, really feel like a lot of these indictments, they, they don't always like tell the difference between them. They kind of mash them together in their minds. But Trump has successfully convinced a you know, swath of the Republican Party that these indictments are politically motivated. He has turned them to his political advantage. And it just means that it's um, very hard for DeSantis to break these people away from Trump. And finally, Nancy, when we talk about the discussions that DeSantis is having with his team, with advisors, with the campaign, how much of that is just conversation with his wife, Casey DeSantis? I think a lot of it is. I mean, the interesting thing on reporting on DeSantis these last several months is that he keeps a very insular, tight world. And so there is a campaign manager. They just elevated someone to be deputy campaign manager. But they really, you know, he and his wife really are their own political advisors and they're a tight-knit team. They, he does not have like a kitchen cabinet of policy advisors, you know, sort of none of that traditional kind of friends or allies operation that a lot of other candidates have or presidents have. It's really him and his wife. All right. Bloomberg's Nancy Cook, looking forward to your continued coverage of this campaign and the governor's economic address this coming Monday. Thank you very much, Tom. We'll send it back to you. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays, 1 to 3 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, Aviation Day is fast approaching in Hong Kong, and we'll look at the aviation sector in the APAC region. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. In Hong Kong, on Tuesday, it's Aviation Day. For a look at the aviation sector and the latest developments, let's get to Doug Krisner, co-host of Bloomberg Daybreak Asia. Doug? 
Tom, in the week ahead, Hong Kong will hold its Aviation Day. Now, this event is sponsored by the International Air Transport Association and the Airport Authority Hong Kong. IATA represents over 300 airlines and nearly 85% of global air traffic. And recently, the association upgraded its projections for passenger traffic. With that in mind, we thought it would be a good time to check in on the aviation industry across the Asia-Pacific. I'm joined now by Danny Lee, Bloomberg Asia Transport reporter. Danny, thanks so much for making the time to chat with me. So much of what drives this industry in the APAC is, of course, tied to China. And we have witnessed the contraction caused by the pandemic, of course, and the policy that Beijing put in place with those severe lockdowns. So let's begin with the big picture here. How well has the aviation industry in Asia been able to recover? The aviation industry in Asia has been able to uh, rebound only as soon as the borders have reopened. So we've seen a bit of uh, Asia being a bit of a laggard to the rest of uh, the wide world. However, we are seeing travel demand pick up very, very quickly. And many, many markets are getting ever closer to that magical goal of exceeding their pre-COVID levels. So we we see uh, China, in particular, the one of the world's biggest travel markets, very much uh, see brisk business on the domestic front. But on the international side of things, uh, flight activities less than half of, of pre-COVID levels. So that's still very much a struggle. When you think about uh, Chinese outbound travel being a huge driver of, of, of tourism and spend for many, many markets, including Southeast Asia and uh, wider parts of Asia in general, that's a real problem where many countries are banking on Chinese travel and spend to help their economic recovery. Even a regional trip, like say from Shanghai to Tokyo, how is that route performing? In good times, it would be very, very brisk, but geopolitical tensions, general strife between the likes of China, Korea, Japan, and other certain markets means flight levels are really back nowhere near to the levels it saw during pre-COVID. And also as a result, uh, visa uh, visa access for, for travel is also a huge hurdle. So it's a, it's a really problematic uh, part of the of the picture where you don't have as many flights and you find it very hard if you're uh, looking to travel to uh, outbound into the likes of North Asia that you can't really get hold of a of a visa. So it's a problem holding uh, holding things back. What do we know about how well these airlines are equipped to handle any sort of volume? Are the staffing levels sufficient right now? Staffing levels in Asia have been okay compared to Europe, the US, where they laid off so many more workers. Uh, Asia hasn't fared as badly. And then we saw quite a few airlines who needed to keep all of their staff for whatever reason they had uh, better support from the government. Or, like in the case, we saw cargo really propping up the airline industry and a lot of the cargo cargo activity has been driven out of Asia. And that very much saved a lot of the airlines here in Asia. So they didn't have to cut as much. Uh, and therefore, you know, they've, uh, they've got a slightly better picture in terms of staffing. Although by no means it's uh, out of the woods per se. You, know, you still see some markets, particularly Hong Kong, which had been closed for over three years, 
they still find it a struggle to to hire and uh, and revive its aviation industry. Danny, thank you so much for being with us and uh, helping set up Hong Kong Aviation Day and uh, really a good discussion about a lot of the trends that we're seeing unfold across the aviation industry in the Asia Pacific. Danny Lee, Bloomberg Asia transport reporter joining from Hong Kong. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thanks, Doug. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.